This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 6th of March 2022 at 10am CET. The United States says it's ready to toughen sanctions against Russia 10 days into its invasion of Ukraine. President Biden says he's working to make it possible to send more security, humanitarian and military help as the assault continues. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has said Western sanctions are akin to war. His warning comes as the IMF says the conflict will have a severe impact on the global economy. Visa and MasterCard have become the latest firms to suspend their operations in Russia. And Japan may take more action in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The country's ruling Liberal Democratic Party said there's a possibility for more sanctions, but warned they will have a big impact on Japanese livelihoods. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has made a desperate plea for Eastern Europe to provide more aircraft to his country. He's asked Poland to send older-built Russian jets, which Ukrainian pilots are familiar with. President Zelensky has urged his citizens to continue fighting to go out and drive the evil out of their cities. Ukraine's military says more than 11,000 Russian troops have now been killed since the invasion. The UNHCR says the exodus is the fastest moving refugee crisis since the Second World War. One and a half million refugees are now thought to have been driven westward into the European Union. 330 refugees from Ukraine are reported to have arrived in Switzerland. Germany's interior ministry says it will accept refugees from Ukraine regardless of nationality. The president of the European Council, Charles Michel, has told Germany's Die Zeit and Italy's L'Espresso that the European Union is absolutely not at war with Russia. He said, with Russia, despite the tragic situation we're experiencing, the bloc has kept all its communication channels open with Moscow. Meanwhile, the Israeli Prime Minister is in Moscow with the Russian President Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin to discuss the war in Ukraine. Naftali Bennett later spoke by phone with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Israel, at the behest of President Zelensky, has offered to mediate in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, coordinating efforts in the crisis with the US, France and Germany. Israel has played down expectations of any breakthrough. A Russian plane is in Washington to pick up about a dozen diplomats from Moscow's UN mission who are accused by Washington of espionage. The US closed its airspace to all Russian aircraft, but the US government approved the flight to make sure the Russians left. And the mayor of the Lithuanian capital Vilnius says a street leading to the Russian embassy will now be called Ukrainian Heroes Street to honour the country following Moscow's invasion. From now on, he said, the business card of every employee of the Russian embassy will have to pay tribute to Ukrainian heroes. The only address on Ukrainian Heroes Street is that of the Russian embassy. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. And after an extended news, it's time to head to Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich, where we can join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for this week's Monocle on Sunday. Good morning, Tyler. We have what you call London on a good day, light wind and a chilly drizzle here in your column this weekend. Any better view from behind your microphone? Well, we don't want to make you jealous. And good morning, Emma. Okay. It is absolutely <laughs> delightful. And if, uh, if you it. look at the for, if you look at the Ford uh, uh, forecast, uh, it uh, looks like we have the same weather for about the next ten or twelve days. Uh, so anyway, listen, we're waiting for you uh, over here. If you want to move your little uh, news operation to this side of the channel, oh, absolutely fine, no problem at all. That uh, just me. I'll, I, I can any kind of escape at the moment because we're, we're dealing, obviously, with it, that that thing where you just do nothing but read and watch the news at the moment. Friends and family are out in various parts of the region. So yes, a little bit of an enclave in Zurich would be most welcome. I'll book my ticket now.
Very good. And we've got a very, very busy program ahead of us. Monocle on Sunday starts right now. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Ahead over the next hour, I'll be joined around the desk here in Zurich by two familiar voices as we look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One week on Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and Ben Ozog's Monocle 24's security correspondent is here. Benno, good morning. A standout theme or story that you're looking at this weekend? Well, there's actually loads. People are looking at this, this odd Russian convoy that is still kind of stuck in front of Kiev. I'm looking at these kind of cities how things are developing as any kind of talk of humanitarian corridors which gave us some hope have unfortunately not materialized but there's also for example a cyber dimension to it Better we're talking to you a little bit later in the program also our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck will have the latest views from London and then we're off to Tokyo hello I'm Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson and I'll be bringing you the latest from Japan more from Fiona indeed a bit later as well it's the 6th of March 2022 live from Zurich this is Monocle on Sunday Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very uh, sunny Zurich uh, this morning. Uh, as we said, just before going into this, uh, a very busy program over the next uh, 54 minutes. I'm very happy to say that our Benno Zog is here. Uh, also, uh, Rob Cox. Uh, of course, Benno, uh, been a rather uh, busy week uh, when you thought about uh, moving into your academic uh, career. Did you ever think that maybe choosing this particular uh, path uh, would get you around so many microphones in front of so many uh, cameras? But uh, as we were saying at the start of the program, I mean, multiple dimensions, many themes uh, to look at. But as you stand back and we're one week into this, 10 days into this almost uh, at this point, what is what is your assessment? Uh, and of course, that's what many people have, have been asking when you, as you said, at the start of this, we have, of course, this convoy we've been hearing about for, for many, many days now, which is whether it's sort of stuck in the mud uh, or whether it's obviously uh, logistical issues uh, that have brought that to a halt. And you, you also, of course, teased us a little bit earlier, of course, with the whole cyber component uh, within all of this as well. Indeed, I think given it's been only a bit more than a week, there is maybe time to reflect because so far we've obviously been chasing every single development, trying to make sense of it all, trying to get a clear picture somewhat. And I think this this um, this term that particularly war historians use a lot uh, comes to mind, which is the fog of war. This uncertainty that you're never fully sure what kind of information you can trust, what the full picture is, because you get loads of glimpses from the ground. But now I think also given I'm an analyst, I try to make sense of it all and see emerging patterns. And the convoy is quite indicative. It's however many miles long, there's different numbers as well. It's a convoy of Russian trucks and tanks and missile launches and so on that is approaching Kiev or rather not approaching Kiev. So the information there is that we've seen pictures of parts of that convoy being destroyed, hit by missiles and Ukrainian artillery. But also mostly it's still in place and it hasn't moved much in the past days. And whether this is indicative of the entire war is kind of out there, but I think we see some elements there. That first of all, the first phase of the Russian attack has been has tried to be quick and decisive, but that didn't materialize. So this convoy is indicative of a second phase of the war coming in with essentially more material, more troops, more tanks and so on. 
But it came to a halt partially for logistical problems. They ran out of fuel. They ran out of out of food partially. It points to potential lack of morale on 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 the part of the Russian troops. But that is also obviously hard to measure because we may see these these instances, videos uh, spread by the Ukrainian side in particular of Russian troops almost deserting or sharing tea with residents because well they want to stop fighting. They were sent into a war that was never. And we're never told that they're fighting a war. So can I all see all of that in that convoy? And maybe to make a last last point about that, the fact that the convoy still exists and just sits there for days, also, despite all that heroism that we hear about, points to the weakness of the Ukrainian army because they're there like sitting ducks, but they're still there because obviously the Ukrainian side lacks the kind of missiles, the kind of air power to actually destroy these sitting ducks. And there we are, kind of waiting for that final push towards Kiev, towards the capital, where President Zelensky is still holding out, because that will be decisive in a military and in a political sense. And this convoy is waiting. At the, at the same time, the city is being surrounded. So we wonder when this final push will happen, whether Putin has the means for it, whether the Ukrainians have the means to resist, and whether then we see further logistical problems or finally the, the actual power of the Russian army that they're really throwing into the battle. So maybe just one convoy. Currently, it's just a line of trucks and tanks, but it's indicative of so much. Rob Cox is uh, also here from uh, Reuters Breaking Views. Uh, Rob, good morning. But I, I wanted to start uh, and picking up just where Ben was with this with this fog of war. You know, one dimension now has been you know over the past week. It's been interesting whether you, no matter what you know, major network you've been watching, is that you've been able to jump from Kiev then of course back to Moscow. We've seen lots of people in their stand up positions uh, in their bureaus. Of course, we've had lots of reporting, and now over the last forty eight hours, we have a situation where everyone from ARD and ZDF in Germany, ABC News, CBS everyone shuttering or at least downing tools with your with their bureaus and from a news gathering perspective what is that going to mean as well when you do not have indeed the of course the news infrastructure to be delivering out of russia as well yeah i mean as as benno said fog of war the other it, it is often said that the first casualty of war is the truth and of course we're seeing that on all sides and if you don't have eyes and ears on the grounds if you're not able to report what you see um let alone what you believe, your opinions, um, then we're all going to be uh, poorer for it. And it is fascinating. I mean, the, the Russian criminal code was amended over the past week, basically to make it an offense uh, to, to report against the, uh, the Kremlin. That has had huge ramifications for organizations, not unlike Reuters. Reuters, we've had to um, just, we've had to change the way we operate. I mean, I think you'll see fewer bylines from Moscow. Um, you're, you know, we, we had uh, something like 50 people on the ground in, in Moscow. It was a very, very important bureau for us. We have people obviously in various cities throughout uh, Ukraine. Um, we have to be mindful of their safety first and foremost. And I'm sure that's what other news organizations are going through. Not everyone has gone through conflict training. Not everyone has used that. These are, you know, they're just like people like you and me who are reporting on any given day. They might be writing about the wheat market, you know, on one day. And then the next thing they know, they might be branded enemies of the state. So this is a really delicate balancing act. Uh, you know, organizations like the ones you mentioned, like the ones I work for, are going to do everything they can, of course, to bring the un- just the uh, the absolute truth that is you know we've at Reuters we've covered people like 
like Putin, like Erdogan, uh, like uh, Donald Trump in the same way everywhere we go. I mean, that's that is how we try to do it. And I, and I think it's uh, but I think it's becoming extremely difficult to do that. And the convoy is a really fascinating thing to me. I mean, I've, you, you've been focused on this and um, it just it's one of those moments. Like, do we really know? <laughs> Again, I when you talk about convoy, I think about. Donald Trump talking about convoys of, you know, immigrants that were coming up uh, up the Mexican peninsula or, you know, up the up the Mexican border to the U.S. border from Guatemala. And it was all nonsense, right, in many respects. Now, it's probably easier to see uh, howitzers using satellite imagery, which I'm guessing the CIA and others are sharing very uh, with with the, their Ukrainian counterparts. But uh, it is fascinating to see what we don't know, what we don't understand. I want to bring uh, Andrew Tuck uh, in, our editor-in-chief uh, in London. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, maybe uh, if we, well, there's, there's two topics. Uh, of course, it seems like this uh, this, this told convoy is, is, is emerging as uh, as a theme. But I want to maybe also just pick up on, on this news gathering uh, component as well. But I think maybe if you take it from, to a domestic uh, position in Russia, where, of course, there is so, well, not even just disinformation, uh, there's just so little information. But Andrew, what do you think happens, though, right now when people... Go, go to book a flight uh, when people are going to the mall, uh, when people's you, you show up to work tomorrow, your business is shuttered because you're part of a multinational. Uh, and, and of course, uh, whether you're working in a fast fashion business or a, uh, a Swedish furniture company, uh, you're not going to uh, be going, you know, into the into the aisles or into the front of the store. Uh, how, do you well, do you think already? Here's the question. Has, has the penny dropped for most of Russia? Is, is there an understanding of what is actually happening? Well, there's a few things you can still get from Moscow to uh, Bangkok. You can still get from Moscow to Dubai. So if you're a wealthy Russian, it's not going to affect you that much in your purchasing of luxury goods, for example. And while bank cards may not work overseas, many of the most wealthy Russians won't be concerned about that. They have accounts in, in, in numerous places around the world. And you just look at someone like Abramovich. You know, he's got, he's got an Israeli passport. He's got Portuguese passport. He doesn't care that he's being blocked here in the UK. He will be just fine. The middle classes will be suffering, not because they can't get their, their bookshelves from Ikea, but because their interest rates on their mortgages will be shooting up and they'll be feeling the pain from that. But at this point, I think when there is so much... There's so little information getting to the average Ru Russian, and even the information that they, they get, they, they, be they believe that the West is wrong. They believe that you know, thousands of Russians were killed in Donbass and Luhansk, and that nobody made a fuss about it, and now there's this war, and you know, Putin is correct, trying to protect Russian people. So at this point, I don't see a huge amount of kind of wavering belief. I've become a little bit addicted looking to official Russian news sites, and I looked at TASS uh, this morning. They you know, they're founded in, I think, the 1900s, but were famed under the Soviets. If you look at that, you know, the, a story, for example, to do with aviation. Now, we, we think that the, the stopping of supplying of parts of training schools in Russia is going to stymie the aviation industry. Yesterday, Putin you know, welcomed crew from Aeroflot, from the, the airlines, and said, this is a great moment. You know, look at our, our, this wonderful plane that we have. This is going to take the, the, the place of all of these terrible American planes. They've got wider bodies. They've got, even got nicer seats. So at the moment, the narrative, I don't think, has shifted enough for there to be people on the streets complaining about it.
Uh, Benno, uh, of course, knowing this patch uh, reasonably well, and of course, yes, uh, certainly many sources have been shut down, but at the same time, uh, you've, every time you go to look at the BBC's website, they're, they're telling, uh, of course, uh, people who are showing up who can't get to it. These are the ways or other proxies to get to, to the BBC's news feed um, as well. Does this start to spread or is there something in, in terms of just the Russian mindset on, of course, the, you know, certainly from the bulk of the population, that people also sort of you know, dig in their position on this as well. That's a really tricky one and that given independent news sites are being shut down and foreign um, news news companies need to leave, it's getting harder and harder to actually assess that kind of picture on the ground. Um, so the su surveys we can't trust anyway, that's part of the problem. So it's an assessment that comes down to loads of anecdotes and actually how many people we may see in the streets of Moscow, St. Petersburg and so on, protesting. There are thousands of them. Um, those are probably the ones that do use VPN to access independent news. But a majority, and I think it's safe to say a majority in Russia, mostly consume state-owned media, whether that's TV, radio, newspapers and so on, which are by now, almost the only ones that are left. And I think there is a bit of a reflex in Russia to when this kind of image images emerge now of potentially Russia waging a war against Ukraine, but also this official narrative of denazification, of pushing back the West, which has always been an antagonist of, of Russia, particularly NATO, of course. I think those are still very, very powerful images and powerful narrative. And while many people may be rather passive in all of that and apolitical almost, by necessity, because voicing one's independent opinion is really hard and getting independent information is also really hard. And one cannot really expect a majority in Russia to undergo all that trouble of doing so. And if you're passive and somewhat apolitical, you're obviously a passive supporter of the Kremlin, whether you deeply believe in it or whether you somewhat believe in it. And... I've had some, some messages and posts on Facebook from Russian friends of mine as well. Some are almost saying goodbye, as in Facebook will be shut down quite soon. We may not have access to it anymore, despite VPNs. And some were also along the lines of, we don't really know what's happening. Apparently, there's some kind of war, but, and there's a big but, Putin will have his reasons. We may not understand it, but probably he does. And then these usual pictures of, well, the West has always been hostile. Ukraine has been chaotic. It isn't a real state. There has been civil war in Ukraine for years. So this narrative is apparently powerful, even, am even among educated, among urban people. So we can't really, and that's essentially what we can take from that, we can't count neither on a palace coup, on a revolution within the elite, nor probably on the streets in Russia toppling that regime anytime soon. There is dissent. There's really brave people who get independent information and take to the streets and protest. But for an actual momentum to gain there, I think that takes maybe a very long time, much more hardship. So far, this, this defensive narrative from the Kremlin, this fortress Russia being under attack from everyone is probably what still prevails. Mm. I want to, uh, we're going to head to the Ukraine in a moment. I just want to do uh, just a quick spin around very quickly because Benny, you're we've been focusing maybe, well, of course, the spotlight on yeah, public opinion and views in Russia. But if we look at public opinion in, in the West and of course, you know, Rob, we've seen of course, the power of of social media networks, etc., to of course to apply apply political pressure. We've you know we've seen this, you know, in all kinds of instances uh, across you know various capitals within the EU across the Atlantic. 
Do you think that there, 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 a surge moment comes about as well, that there just is so much pressure on London, on Washington, of course, on, on Brussels, both EU and NATO, uh, that things start to change? Uh, or is this a job best left to the politicians? Uh, well, I, I, I think answer it a different way. If you look at what's happened in the past week um, with the financial sanctions, business sanctions, economic sanctions, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever in 30 years as a journalist ever seen anything quite like this. And it's not even just that politicians, it's almost gone beyond. And, and you think about ESG, you know, economic, social governance, so this kind of movement, it actually is real. Like, so all these companies, Companies that have been talking about purpose and how they need to do this. Well, this is the moment when when they're being forced, in a sense, their hand is being forced. And you have organizations like the IOC, FIFA, and UEFA that are actually these guys have never been. I don't, I'm not sure moral backbone has been sort of their character, their character, one of their characteristics. They're all um, joined up. Switzerland, I mean, your country has decided essentially to give up its neutral stance. I mean. Well, okay, you Not can, really I'm sure tricky, it's nuanced, but, yeah. but you know, banks are, are, everyone is lining up. I've never seen anything quite like this. So I guess that the, the, they are all on board. P, so the people must be on board, employees are on board. Politicians are, let's face it, in the West, we don't exactly have the greatest leadership around the world at the moment. They're not always going to lead. They're going to take their, they're going to follow what they see out there in the streets and the people are supporting, whether it's McDonald's or Pepsi potentially pulling out, things like that. I guess so. So I got to bring back a little bit to the people in Russia are going to feel this. Now they aren't feeling it now. So they, they may not know what's going on because they are watching state television. And this is true. I have friends whose family are there and they're just there. They've drunk the Kool-Aid completely. But at some point when they can no longer get the goods and services they need, when their, their bank accounts are, are completely frozen, when life becomes intolerable, at some point, they're going to turn on their leaders. That happens. It will take time. And they will say, well, it's those bad guys in the West that are doing this. But they also have their reasons. And I think at some point, those people will be as will be the, the rational people we expect or hoped that Vladimir Putin was. Andrew, just uh, over to you in London uh, very quickly. Uh, your take on this, because there's something a little bit unprecedented here as well, that you have, of course... Yeah, you have President Zelensky. He's he's speaking to the world directly, uh, of course, through his own channels. You know, a very wily uh, communicator. Uh, what type of pressure does that apply? If if I'm viewing this from Seattle as much as I might be sitting in Southampton. Well, uh, everyone is clear. He he has won the media war here. He he is he's skilled. He comes across well. He 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 knows how to give you know, good little kind of phrases that become memes that 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 appeal to a younger generation there's no doubt that he has been an eloquent master of of everything that's digital and and getting his voice out and also has been eloquent at explaining what ukraine is if everybody now knows about lviv and kharkiv and all the way down to mariupol we we know the shape of the country we know where its borders are people didn't know that a few weeks ago so this is one of putin's failures he has made ukraine it seared into people's minds in a way that it never, ever was before. But just coming back to Rob, you know, I think this, this, we have to be very careful about this notion that some economic sanctions, no matter how harsh, will work. You look at Venezuela. You know, that's been going on for years and years and years. And all that happens is there is an adjustment. The wealthy find a way to leave. You know, the, the middle class gets stymied and, and run down. Poverty increases. 
But you know, we, we see a, a, a mission going from the states to actually to Venezuela this week to try and persuade Maduro to come on side with the Americans. So maybe there'll be some easing of sanctions there. But you know, it doesn't work quickly. What will work maybe more quickly in this instance is if we believe the numbers. 10,000 Russian soldiers already killed. That's 10,000 families, their friends, their cousins, all seeing body bags coming home. That's, you know, as in the Vietnam War, that's what begins to change people's minds. Not the fact that they can't get their Billy book, you know, Billy bookcase. That doesn't really work. I think it's, it's more this, this, this notion of the, the dead coming back to Russia that may turn things against Putin. Uh, Benno, just quickly, does uh, Western public opinion uh, start to, yeah, create a level of uh, maybe a soggy brow uh, in uh, halls of leadership uh, to whether we're talking no-fly zones or, or anything else? And I guess I come back to this notion of public pressure versus, yes, leaving this to, well, professionals. They may not be great professionals, uh, but they're still heads of states and leaders. Mm-hmm. That's actually really difficult, and I find it a, a very... That I mentioned that I'm somewhat uneasy about because there's a lot of activism on behalf of Western leaders as well, let alone mm. others like consumers, companies and so on. And while this is admirable and really important, particularly when it comes to generally supporting Ukraine in whatever way, there's also a bit of a, a danger of being too quick, too non-strategic about certain things. Germany announcing 100 billion for the Bundeswehr, for example, for its military we, we're not really sure whether that materialises and there was a turn by 180 degrees within a day. That's not strategy. That is kind of activism. And while we fully understand that there's this urge to react, to not feel powerless, we probably shouldn't be silly. We should probably be sober. We should assess the situation first. That's again the analyst and the researcher and me talking, of course. First analysis and then come up with the means and the numbers and not the other way around. So it's really, really difficult. And we see across civil society institutions, people taking a stance, including universities, for example, showing solidarity with Ukraine, which is important and support researchers and support students and so on. We must at the same time, of course, make sure not to alienate Russians, Russians that aren't really to blame for that war because Putin never asked them for their opinion. So this is a really tricky one and I would hope Western leaders to be a bit more a bit more strategic about things and maybe particularly the EU, which has been very quick, is all of a sudden sending weapons to Ukraine. Well, that helps the Ukrainian army, of course, but since when is the EU in a position to send weapons? Is security policy all of a sudden its, its strength? It almost appears like they're jumping on a train as well to make somewhat use of that opportunity and show that they're capable. But this may not last. The unity that they try to display may not be there. So a bit of a sober assessment may be more helpful because this is a conflict that will keep us that will keep us busy for years to come. The relationship with Russia aren't just going anywhere just because we isolate that country. We need ways out. And while everyone talks about escalating sanctions, at some point we also need to talk about de-escalation and giving the right kind of incentives, somewhat of a way out for Russia to save face, to declare whatever victory and ideally maintain as much Ukrainian sovereignty as possible. These are really big questions that keep me busy and I wonder whether leaders have them those on, on their mind as well, or whether they're really just busy to react and and present themselves strong on social media. Mm. Uh, we're going to cross to the Ukraine uh, now. Uh, Lada Rosetsky is over there. She is the founder of Black Trident, a defense and security uh, consulting uh, group. Uh, hello, Lada. Hello. 
Uh, maybe can we uh, just start, and, and probably you've uh, heard where we've been uh, today with this conversation, um, and maybe just picking up on Benno's point about this, you know, obviously this supply issue. And I guess one thing we're all curious about is, is the supply coming in from Poland and, and elsewhere, is, is it reaching... Um, whether, of course, uh, these are these are, of course, uh, yeah, support militia, of course, as much as as the Ukrainian army right now. When we look at logistics supply and all of this, yeah, this inpouring of of weaponry that we hear about, uh, of course, from uh, from various well, from the Western Alliance. Right. Well, I wouldn't call it an inpouring of weapons at this point, and uh, it's important to point out that we don't have a militia here on the ground. We have something called a territorial defense which is established by Ukrainian law as of the 1st of January. And it is a direct vertical under the general staff of the um, Ukrainian armed forces. So the legal structure, it's its important to keep in mind, these aren't radical volunteers or, <clears throat> or um, an unlawful grouping of sorts. It's quite uh, established. As far as the supplies are concerned, uh, the uh, supply networks are being established, which is actually very positive. Uh, the armaments that are coming in, it's not enough. Particularly, uh, we need anti-air uh, uh, missiles so like to protect uh, Ukraine's uh, airspace. Stingers, for instance, are like really missing. We need a lot more stingers coming in. Uh, also, machine guns, pistols for the the boots on the ground are are lacking, and it's good to have support, obviously, because Ukrainians here on the ground are really defending not only their own freedom and democracy, but that of the Western uh, world and and beyond. A lot at the top of the program, we were talking about uh, this convoy and the convoy we've been hearing about for some time. And I'm wondering if your sources uh, have shed any light on here is, of course, you know, it's, you know, I guess on one side, it's it's great that it is stalled. Um, but at the same time, we don't really have much sense if this is a logistical issue on the Russian side. Um, is it because there is some success on the part of Ukrainian forces? But any views on that? Um, yeah, definitely. It's it's a combination of of all. So we hear that actually there, there is a logistic issue. And we've heard this before the Russians actually invaded Ukraine, that uh, they would be having very severe logistic issues. So it's kind of shocking to see that they did a full frontal all over Ukraine, rather than what we had expected, that they would come in, retreat, come in, retreat. Uh, the Ukrainian forces are really doing a good job in defending the city. However, that uh, huge column behind uh, or uh, by Kiev is um, also a huge inter uh, psychological operation. Just having them stay there day in and day out and not knowing what's going to happen, while also knowing that had we received the proper support from Ukraine's partners and allies, it would have been possible to uh, neutralize those the, the, that column and actually uh, protect Ukraine's capital city, which Russian Federation is claiming as its own. Just tell us, this is a, and, and you know, it's, well, I, I would imagine that uh, you may or may not be at liberty to, to reveal certain sources, but of course, many are wondering, about the whole notion of advisors and the support that's there, uh, of course, uh, probably from a, a PR point of view, we heard that a lot of advisors, of course, were pulled out uh, right away. But I think a lot of people are wondering right now who is still left from from the West and is there support on the ground? 
Um, unofficially, there is support on the ground. Uh, officially, I haven't heard of any reports of support being on the ground. I believe a lot of information that is coming in and guidance uh, as to even like um, NATO type of formations or NATO support, uh, that's all being basically done online, uh, surprisingly. So you, we have many less advisors than, than one would think. Lada, um, Rob Cox uh, here in studio uh, with us in Zurich uh, has a question for you. Hi, Lada. Um, I had a question just in general. I, there's, I've seen a lot of reports, certainly in the U.S. and other other media, about Ukrainians, young Ukrainians, people going back to fight. You know, so going back to support their 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 country, men and women. Is there a is there can you provide any sort of sense? I don't know on the ground of 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 whether that's true and whether there is this sort of influx of people that are um, waving the flag and, you know, going to gonna try to fight the Russians. Yeah, um, I personally know two of them, actually, who are who are making their way back from a very cozy Western country. So, yeah, there there is a return. We are we do see that formation um, on top of that of the uh, international battalion for the territorial defense. I believe that they've gathered over a thousand individuals from over seven countries that that are coming in to to fight the Russians and try to establish some sort of uh, peace and stability in Ukraine that that is that that, that belongs to a democratic uh, country. A lot also Benazog, uh, who's uh, with us uh, here in Zurich, uh, he has uh, one for you as well. Hi, Lada. I was wondering about the days and weeks to come. What do you consider the theater that we should? watch most closely to see how the picture is emerging. Is it this battle for Kiev that's decisive both militarily and politically? Or is it, do we see indications in other places like Kharkiv, like Odessa and so on that are decisive? And I was wondering about your guess. Do we see anything at the diplomatic front that could stabilize the situation or give us any hope? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, the battle for Kiev is is something we really, really, really need to be watching out for and defending Kiev as, as, as much as possible. What um, unfortunately we're starting to get some pretty bad reports of human rights abuses. And of course they need to be verified uh, before they are spread. But what we are reading is just really atrocious. And it is unfortunately connected to the Kadyrov uh, Chechens that have been uh, put, let, let into Ukraine under under Putin's command, uh, and also from from like from Crimea. What I think that we should be focusing on and has not been receiving enough attention is the uh, Black Sea region. Uh, currently, this morning we're seeing maneuvering uh, by the Russian side, which looks like they are preparing for a, a, an attack from the. Um, from the Ukraine's uh, Black Sea shoreline. And also attention needs to be paid at, at the uh, role of Belarus, because right currently everybody is basically focusing on the role of Russia. And Belarus is uh, conspiring together with, with the Russian Federation and um, allowing its land to be used. I mean, a lot of the rocket, uh, the, the threats of, of air raids are actually coming from uh, fighter jets that are based in Belarus. So we're trying to figure out, are they Russian? Are they Belarusian? But it doesn't really matter because Belarus is allowing uh, its territory to be used to attack a sovereign uh, territory. Uh, another thing that we should be really focusing on, two more things, like uh, boots on the ground as far as blue helmets. Uh, I know that legally it's a kind of a complicated issue. We saw the Ukraine's prime minister calling for them finally yesterday. 
so that's something we should be pushing for. And uh, a no-fly zone is actually diplomacy because it's not about attacking. And uh, Ukraine's no-fly zone is something very, very specific that we haven't seen in history yet. I mean, no-fly zones in themselves are not that that old of a phenomenon. Ukraine's, uh, so, so normally with a no-fly zone, a state's sovereignty is violated uh, with the permission of the United Nations Security Council resolution. But here, Ukraine's, uh, there's no... Uh, um, aggressor that whose whose uh, air air superiority and air um, supremacy is being violated. Ukraine is the victim inviting uh, other states to come and protect the uh, the skies. This case would be different if we were looking to the United Nations Security Council to close the skies over the Russian Federation. That would be a traditional no fly zone, and also it, it's valid to be calling for something like this. <clears throat> so no-fly zone, and it, we don't need the entire NATO. So when Stoltenberg came out the other day and said, oh, you know, only NATO can impose it. Well, let's look at Iraq. I mean, it, NATO didn't impose a no-fly zone over Iraq. That was uh, United States, UK, and France. So from a diplomatic perspective, we could be looking to countries like Kuwait, uh, Israel, other uh, partner states and allied states that have a vested interest in peace and stability, not only over the Western parts of Ukraine, but in Ukraine in its whole. And uh, Lada Roslitsky, uh, founder of Black Trident uh, Defense and Security, a consulting group, uh, joining us from Ukraine, undisclosed uh, location uh, for obvious uh, reasons. Uh, thank you very, very much uh, for joining us. We're heading back to London a little bit late uh, with the news headlines, uh, and I, I'm sure we have a fast set from Emma right now. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Fresh attempts to evacuate civilians from the Ukrainian city of Mariupol will be made today. They come a year after a ceasefire and humanitarian escape corridor fell apart due to Russian shelling. The US says it's ready to toughen sanctions against Russia. President Biden said he's working to make it possible to send more security, humanitarian and military help as the assault continues. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has urged its citizens to continue fighting to go out and drive this evil out of their cities. And Visa and MasterCard have become the latest firms to suspend operations in Russia. Those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. 1038 uh, here in Zurich, 1838 um, in Tokyo. Uh, we're crossing uh, over to Warsaw right now to speak to Michal uh, Potocki. He is at uh, Genetic Gazeta uh, Pravna uh, in uh, in Poland. Uh, good morning. I, I wanted to, to, to start uh, with you just uh, to maybe give us a view, a snapshot as to if we look uh, a little bit uh, beyond Warsaw, what is happening right now uh, of course, with this enormous influx of, of refugees uh, cr- crossing into Poland, of course, uh, moving broader across the EU. Mm, hello, good morning. Thank you for for, for inviting me to your uh, to your radio. Um, yes, actually, in Poland, we have a huge, huge influx of Ukrainian refugees. Uh, there are already <clears throat> more than half a million of people came to Poland already, and we are unfortunately um, we are expecting next hundreds of thousands in the. In, in, in the next days. Um, uh, currently, uh, most of them actually uh, stay at our homes because because Polish Polish people just invited uh, invited Ukrainian families to their homes. Um, there are special online um, services, special websites that in which you can register yourself if you want to invite some Ukrainian refugees, and the Ukrainian refugees already know about them. Um, so um, there, there's a huge, uh, <clears throat> there's a huge movement actually, 
uh, we would need probably some more um, state policy to support not only the refugees but also those families that invited them to their homes. And this is what our government is working on. Um, probably in the in, in the next week we would have some new legislation about this. Um, uh, and uh, basically, uh, basically we are we are afraid too, because 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 we feel that uh, uh, the Russian Federation could be a threat, a direct threat also also to us. Um, we are we are remember a quote of our one of our former presidents that uh, um, that was uh, that was that was said during the uh, invasion of Georgia in 2008 that after Georgia would come Ukraine then the Baltic states and then probably also Poland and this is a very very famous quote in Poland especially nowadays. Michal, just to tell us that we, before probably most of us went to bed last night, uh, there was word out of Washington and also Warsaw that there is a discussion about the provision of, of MiG-29 um, fighters, uh, of course, because these are aircraft uh, that the Ukraine uh, pilots will be familiar with. Um, any any further movement on this, but also the sentiment behind this? Uh, is there any resistance or, or would you say unanimous support uh, to, to see this material uh, delivered uh, to, to, the, to, to, to the Ukraines? The decision hasn't been made yet, uh, I must say. I know there are rumors, I know there are some discussions. Um, the first, let's say, um, wave of such discussions, it was like a few days ago, when uh, some European officials uh, said that there is a proposal that the former uh, former communist countries would, would transfer their Soviet-made aircraft to the, to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, and also former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko said, uh, said it publicly. <clears throat> but uh, then uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it, 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 it hasn't been approved by the government. Now uh, we can see the article in the Financial Times about, about that, uh, that kind of decision, discussions uh, conducted between Poland and the United States. Uh, let's wait. I mean, there is no such decision yet. Uh, is it possible? Well, probably it is possible, uh, but we have to we have to remember that every move, uh, especially on the current situation, could have could have enormous consequences. So, so probably also our government would be very, um, uh, very, um, you know, you, you cannot be too brave, especially mm -hmm. in our in our geographical uh, conditions. Um, Poland, uh, Polish government said it clear, put it clear that there is no possibility that we are sending our troops to Ukraine, but they also said that we will we would support our neighbors with every other assistance needed and, and, and possible. Um, would it also include aircraft? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, but there is such discussion, and it is, it is true that there is a such discussion with our American uh, allies. Emil, just before we go, we've obviously been talking about the flow of, of, of human uh, traffic refugees who are, of course, uh, moving westbound. But uh, we were just talking, uh, of course, a little bit uh, earlier about, uh, of course, uh, yes, Ukrainians uh, and, and, of course, others uh, who want to go and, and, and fight. Uh, do you see uh, any, any sense of also the the movement uh, eastbound as well? Uh, you know, are there are there staging positions uh, where where of course uh, potential fighters are being processed before they go into uh, Ukraine, or or is all of this happening in Lviv or or somewhere else uh, potentially? 
Yeah, well, you, you, all, we need to remember that before the war, also before the war, we had uh, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians working here and studying here in Poland. Poland was the uh, um, the country number one, the state number one to which the Ukrainians emigrated in the last decade. Uh, so we have huge population of young Ukrainian men, uh, and many of them decided has has already decided to come back to to Ukraine to fight. Uh, as far as I remember, there are Ukrainian statistics uh, uh, that uh, say um, about 60,000 uh, 60, people already came back from Poland just to, you know, to, to, to enroll the army and to fight. Uh, probably there would be some more. I personally know some of my, some of my Ukrainian friends uh, decided to, to go back to Ukraine to fight. Uh, so yes, this is this is also very interesting and very um, and 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 very uh, large phenomena, I must say. Uh, Mihail Potocki from Genetica Zeta Pravda, a newspaper in Warsaw. We're going to have to leave it uh, there. Thank you very much. We're heading to uh, Helsinki in a moment uh, to speak to our Petri Burstov. But better, uh, uh, I just wanted to ask you. You know, when we, of course, have now, and, and, and Rob was touching on this earlier, where we've seen you know, really unprecedented moves in terms of sanctions, a real coming together on, on the part of NATO uh, and, and, the U, and the EU, and of course, uh, th- this sort of sense of, yeah, of, of a real coalition which seems very lined up. Now, when, we, when Michal says, of course, there is this fear in Poland, is, is that fear legitimate um, at this point uh, that given, of course, you know, knowing what could be invoked, you know, on the part of NATO as well. Um, you know, it, it, does Russia really sort of think that this is still a game to play? Mm. That's an interesting one. It's ob- and obviously worries all kinds of Western leaders as well, that this conflict may in one way or other um, spread across Ukraine's borders. And bear in mind that obviously Poland is in the trickiest of locations. It has a common border with Russia with the Kaliningrad enclave and with Belarus as well, which is very much a Russian satellite. And it's quite exposed in all kinds of ways also. And if we look back in history, um, Poland has been invaded too many times not to worry about that. And Putin's rhetoric is probably not very helpful either. He's warned about all kinds of NATO involvement and this discussion about sending fighter jets to Ukraine, in whatever way, would they fly with Ukrainian pilots straight out of Poland across the border? Would they be li- delivered on land like other weapons are? These are tricky issues because that's probably just about what Putin could tolerate in terms of support. Um, but he's threatened with nu- nuclear weapons already. Not that this is too, too dangerous or surprising at all, but it's certainly out there. So Poland is rightfully worried. And obviously, Poland is also has this society that it's had a fairly nationalist politics in the past few years. It has a very large Ukrainian community, as we heard. It has a large Belarusian community as well. So in so many ways, in society and politics, by its geostrategic location, it's very involved and very worried about things spreading. But as I indicated earlier, there's a very strong urge and caution on behalf of NATO leaders, the US and so on to contain, as sad and pragmatic as this sound, to contain the conflict to Ukraine. So probably by intention, we won't see a spreading of that conflict, but there's always this tiny tiny likelihood of accidents, misunderstandings, small incidents at the border that are really dangerous in and of itself. Uh, Better, we're just going to head up to, um, well, points north and, and east uh, as well. Petri Burstov, our correspondent uh, in Helsinki, uh, is there. Uh, Petri, good morning. Good morning. You've got one with that, Tyler. 
Uh, tell me, uh, you uh, had a story for us on, on Thursday, and this was a very interesting one, which is, again, about uh, really the, the, the flow of, of, of human traffic. In this case, Russians getting on the trains in St. Petersburg, uh, ending up at the main station um, in, in Helsinki. Uh, you know, we're not talking about tens of thousands, but we're talking nevertheless about, about very, very full trains. So... We know that obviously there is a visa situation, of course, uh, for Russians uh, to, of course, to to come uh, into the into the EU. How is this being met? And I'm wondering if I if I you know if I flipped on uh, Ule, your state broadcaster, if I opened up uh, Helsing and Sonomat uh, this morning, uh, how is this being handled? Yes. So um, as as you said, we've seen hundreds of arrivals. We're seeing on average about 700 arrivals per day on the Allegro trains from uh, Saint Petersburg, and it's been going on now for good part of a week so you know we're getting close to 10,000 so so massive numbers by 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 any standard um now most of the people uh, russian citizens arriving in helsinki are actually uh russians that already either reside here or reside in another eu country simply because uh we've heard reports about difficulties in obtaining uh, new visas from russia so that points to that those who arrive already had visas. Then you also have, um, you know, Finland still has COVID restrictions. You need a, a vaccine uh, certificate of a vaccine that Finland has approved. Obviously, Russian Sputnik is, is not on, the, on, on that list. So, you know, um, most people arriving are there. Um, you know, we, we've seen interviews uh, with people arriving, stating reasons for their uh, leaving Russia. You know, there are people who are fleeing Putin's um, rule, simply fleeing the war. There are people who want to dodge the draft. You know, there are reports also about that. The people are scared of, of being drafted into the military. And then, of course, people who live in the West, you know, uh, have some financial investment in, in, in Russia. You know, they, they, they are afraid of the sanctions and, and just want to want to want to get out. Uh, Petri, just to tell me, uh, do you get the sense, though, that Helsinki becomes this sort of new exile uh, hub uh, for uh, Russians who, of course, uh, do not ag- agree with the current regime, uh, maybe being also a little bit cynical about it as well, that this also becomes a bit of a business base? Because I'm sure a lot of people, as much as yeah, they may not dis- they may disagree with the current uh, regime and uh, not uh, particularly uh, fond of Mr. Putin's policies, um, nevertheless, uh, they have to function uh, within an EU, within a global trade context. Uh, so is this a bit of a role that Helsinki ends up uh, taking on, uh, perhaps even a bit unwillingly. That's that's uh, that's quite possible, even even likely. I would argue um, we've already in the past um, decade or so we've seen a lot of Russian financial interest in in um, Eastern Finland as as well as in in Helsinki. So that's of course um, set to uh, set to continue. And uh, you know, if the numbers continue rising, you know, it's. It can be said that almost 10,000 Russians have already arrived. If it continues on the same path, we're talking massive numbers. You know, they are wealthy people, most, most of them. You know, they, they bring with them investments. And we've already seen spikes in hotel bookings uh, in, in Helsinki. But I mean, the interesting question is, of course, uh, most of the Russian visas last only three months. Um, and after that, um, you know, they would have to apply for a residence permit. Will they get one? Will they apply, will they apply for refugee status? If, if so, on what grounds will Finland um, then give this visa to them, uh, this, this refugee status to them? So there are many, many open, open questions still. And then there's the financial aspects. You know, Russian credit cards uh, don't function outside of Russia. How will they pay for their hotel stays, their, their uh, rents and, and, and so on?
Petri Bristoff, uh, our correspondent in Helsinki, uh, thank you very much. We're going to leave it there. We're just uh, going to head east from you now, uh, now uh, to our Fiona Wilson, uh, our bureau chief uh, in Tokyo. Good afternoon, Fiona. Hi, Tyler. Uh, of course, we've been uh, chatting uh, across uh, the week about of course, uh, Japan's take uh, on all of this and and various noises, of course, coming out of Tokyo. We're, uh, we're moving towards 10 days into this, Fiona. Is, is this a dominant story if I'm picking up the Yomiuri Shimbun, if I'm looking looking at the uh, at the Nikkei uh, right uh, right now? And, and I guess, again, we've been talking about uh, public opinion. Uh, any any sense of, of the mood uh, in uh, in Japan? Yeah, it's an absolutely huge story here. I mean, you know, it cuts just through so many issues, apart from the sort of political angle, you know, strong support for Ukraine here. I think there's a lot of concern about the impact on the Japanese economy. If they're just looking at it from a Japan point of view, you know, Japan absolutely has, you know, pretty much no nuclear power anymore. So um, obviously the price of oil is very, very important in terms of uh, the economy. So they're looking at that. But I think generally, you know, there's a lot of popular support for Ukraine. I was in Shibuya yesterday and there was a a big demo for Ukraine, um, a mix of Japanese, Ukrainians, uh, apparently some Russians there as well. So, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of popular support. Um, and if, if, of course, if we uh, look at the what's coming out of the foreign ministry uh, and, and of course, the, the PM's office uh, as well, does Japan see itself having uh, a role, perhaps not a mediating one, but maybe a leadership voice um, in the region across this? I think it would love to. I mean, I think this is a really interesting moment. Prime Minister Kishida has stood up very quickly to condemn what happened in Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine. And I think he's trying to contrast really strongly with what happened in 2014 when Shinzo Abe was prime minister. There. He was a bit more he wasn't exactly ambivalent. He criticised Russia, but he kept his uh, his view on this this territorial dispute between Japan and Russia that's ongoing, has been ongoing since the Second World War, which has never been resolved and, and actually shows no sign of being resolved. And I think Kishida is really aware of that. It's a bit of realistic politics here. He knows those negotiations are going nowhere. I think in 2014, maybe Lavrov uh, dangled the possibility of uh, the negotiations going in Japan's favour. It never happened. And I think Kishida, who was foreign minister then, he's just not going to be caught twice. So I think he is thinking Japan should play a more international role. And he's in there, you know, lockstep with his uh, Western allies. Fiona, just quickly, uh, Rob Cox has a has a, a quick uh, quick question for you. Uh, I mean, what is what is the sense in, of the Japanese, the ordinary, you know, man or woman on the street about about the Japan's commitment to uh, either militarily involve itself or in some way support the Ukrainian resistance? I'm just just thinking, you know, just back. It's you know, it's not a place. I mean, we saw Germany had this historic shift. One might say this week about its view about defense. Or um, I'm just wondering. You know, Japan has always said self-defense, self-defense, self-defense. Is there any sort of shift that you think um, the man on the street or woman on the street? That's that's such a good question, Rob. Actually, it's really interesting. And I think the man on the street doesn't want to shift that. I think the feeling is let's give the moral support, let's show our support, let's buy chopsticks in yellow and blue, which has been happening. Um, but there's no sense really. On on the ground of people saying we want to get troops into into this conflict and interesting it's shinzo abe again who raised the possibility of japan hosting american nuclear weapons which i think was went down extremely badly and he was very quickly uh, shut down by the defense minister and by the prime minister so i don't get any sense of people wanting to get involved in any military sense i don't think you're going to see a german revolution in japan 
Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief uh, in Tokyo. We have to leave it there as we hurtle towards the the end of the program. Um, Benno, some uh, maybe closing thoughts and remarks from you. Uh, very hard to, of course, uh, look at even where we go across the, the day ahead, uh, never mind uh, the next week. But one that we have seen is just a very busy uh, switchboard uh, at the Kremlin, uh, everyone wanting to have a conversation, uh, must do wonders uh, for, for the, uh, the ego of Mr. Putin that everyone wants to have a, have a chat. And in a way, is there also a bit of Western jockeying uh, going on here as well as to who is going to play mediator out of all of this as well? So far, we haven't seen too many of these high-level high-level interactions since the war started. And actually, um, the conversation that we've seen earlier this week between Emmanuel Macron, French president, and Vladimir Putin was apparently at the request of Putin himself, who then, in a one-and-a-half-hour conversation, apparently laid out still his maximalist claims. Um, and the Elysee afterwards declared that Putin is apparently seeking to subdue all of Ukraine. So that's... Probably currently, if you diplomatically interact with the guy in the Kremlin, there's nothing to get out of it. There's no kind of good PR related to it, let alone any tangible results. But these contacts, of course, have to be maintained. They have to talk to each other to even find the tiniest glimpse of hopes for a diplomatic solution and de-escalation. Because while Putin is still um, pursuing military goals and thinks he can claim further territory that he then either can annex or use in negotiations, there may still be small signs of, at some point, him stopping of the Russian army coming into even bigger problems. So we must watch out for that. And I guess these these contexts remain. But so far, there isn't much to gain. Uh, Andrew Tuck back in London. Now, just quickly uh, from you, uh, of course, we, we've seen various five, seven-point plans uh, offered up uh, by Prime Minister Johnson. Uh, but how does this week look from a, a UK uh, diplomacy point of view in all of this? Well, he's done a lot of talking. I think many people here, including many MPs, want to see some swifter action to close down the, the resources and, the, and seize property belonging to many of the, those sanctioned oligarchs who have used London as their base. And I think that it's, it is a chance for the UK to play a more important role. And fascinating to see that with, with the EU, things are very much back in sync. There is no kind of sniping about Brexit. Everybody understands what's going to happen. But yes, as we said, on the world stage, let's see what happens. You know, there are going to be more talks between the Russians and the Ukrainians this week. None of those have led to anything. Uh, Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, obviously was in Moscow yesterday uh, seeing um, Putin. Nothing seems to come out, but there are these back-channel conversations going on even now, and people wondering how you ever give Putin an out and whether he will ever take it. Andrew, thanks for that. Rob Cox, very quickly in five seconds. My prediction for this week, we'll see a lot more yachts being seized in various ports around the world and uh, lots of oligarchs being starting to get really peed off. So that's, that's it. Good news. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Cox, Ben Ozog, and Andrew Tuck, also Emma Nelson back in London, uh, Desiree Benley, and uh, of, of course, uh, Marcus Hippie producing this. Uh, have a very good week, everyone. That's it from Zurich. Goodbye.